What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And lastly, that while not liberal, he had given many evidences of being a man of means. So much done, I entered the office and waited for him to come in, in the hope of having an opportunity to observe his manner when the clerk handed him that strange-looking letter from Mary Leavenworth. And did you succeed? No, an awkward gawk of a fellow stepped between us at just the critical moment, and shut off my view. But I heard enough that evening from the clerk and servants of the agitation he had shown on receiving it, to convince me I was upon a trail worth following. I accordingly put on my men, and for two days Mr. Clavering was subjected to the most rigid watch a man ever walked under. But nothing was gained by it. His interest in the murder, if interest at all, was a secret one and though he walked the streets, studied the papers, and haunted the vicinity of the house in Fifth Avenue, he not only refrained from actually approaching it, but made no attempt to communicate with any of the family. Meanwhile you crossed my path, and with your determination incited me to renewed effort. Convinced from Mr. Clavering's bearing, and the gossip I had by this time gathered in regard to him, that no one short of a gentleman and a friend could succeed at getting the clue of his connection with this family, I handed him over to you and found me a rather unmanageable colleague. Mr. Grice smiled very much as if a sour plum had been put into his mouth, but made no reply, and a momentary pause ensued. "'Did you think to inquire?' I asked at last, if any one knew where Mr. Clavering had spent the evening of the murder. "'Yes, but with no good result. It was agreed he went out during the evening, also that he was in his bed in the morning when the servant came in to make his fire.' But further than this no one seems posted. So then, in fact, you gleaned nothing that would in any way connect this man with the murder, except his marked and agitated interest in it, and the fact that a niece of the murdered man had written a letter to him. That is all. Another question. Did you hear in what manner and at what time he had procured a newspaper that evening? No, I only learned that he was observed, by more than one, to hasten out of the dining-room with the post in his hand, and to go immediately to his room without touching his dinner. Humph! That does not look. If Mr. Clavering had had a guilty knowledge of the crime, he would either have ordered dinner before opening the paper, or having ordered it, he would have eaten it. Then you do not believe, from what you have learned, that Mr. Clavering is the guilty party? Mr. Grice shifted uneasily glanced at the papers protruding from my coat-pocket, and exclaimed, "'I am ready to be convinced by you that he is.' That sentence recalled me to the business at hand. Without appearing to notice his look, I recurred to my questions. "'How came you to know that Mr. Clavering was in this city last summer? Did you learn that, too, at the Hoffman House?' "'No, I ascertained that in quite another way. In short, I have had a communication from London in regard to the matter.' "'From London?' "'Yes, I have a friend there in my own line of business, "'who sometimes assists me with a bit of information when requested.' "'But how? "'You've not had time to write to London, "'and receive an answer since the murder.' "'It is not necessary to write. "'It is enough for me to telegraph him the name of a person, "'for him to understand that I want to know everything he can gather "'in a reasonable length of time about that person. "'And you sent the name of Mr. Clavering to him?' "'Yes, in cipher.' "'And have received a reply?' "'This morning.' 
I looked towards his desk. "'It's not there,' he said. "'If you will be kind enough to feel in my breast-pocket, you will find a letter.' It was in my hand before he finished his sentence. "'Excuse my eagerness,' I said. "'This kind of business is new to me, you know.' He smiled indulgently at a very old and faded picture hanging on the wall before him. "'Eagerness is not a fault, only the betrayal of it. But read out what you have there.' Let us hear what my friend Brown has to tell us of Mr. Henry Ritchie Clavering, of Portland Place, London. I took the paper to the light, and read as follows. Henry Ritchie Clavering, gentleman, aged forty-three, born in Hertfordshire, England. His father was Charles Clavering, for a short time in the army. Mother was Helen Ritchie of Dumfriesshire, Scotland. She is still living. Home with HRC in Portland Place, London. H.R.C. is a bachelor, six feet high, squarely built, weight about twelve stone, dark complexion, regular features, eyes dark brown, nose straight, called a handsome man, walks erect and rapidly. In society is considered a good fellow, rather a favorite, especially with the ladies. Is liberal, not extravagant, reported to be worth about five thousand pounds per year, and appearances give color to this statement. Property consists of a small estate in Hertfordshire, and some funds, amount not known. Since writing this much, a correspondent sends the following in regard to his history. In forty-six, went from uncle's house to Eton. From Eton went to Oxford, graduating in fifty-six. Scholarship good. In eighteen fifty-five, his uncle died, and his father succeeded to the estates. Father died in fifty-seven by a fall from his horse or a similar accident. Within a very short time, H.R.C. took his mother to London, to the residence named, where they have lived to the present time. Travelled considerably in 1860. Part of the time was with Blank of Munich, also in party of Vandervoorts from New York. Went as far east as Cairo. Went to America in 1875 alone, but at end of three months returned on account of mother's illness. Nothing is known of his movements while in America. From servants learned that he was always a favourite from a boy, more recently has become somewhat taciturn. Toward last of his stay watched the post carefully, especially foreign ones. Posted scarcely anything but newspapers. Has written to Munich. Have seen from waste-paper basket torn envelope directed to Amy Belden, no address. American correspondents, mostly in Boston, two in New York, names not known, but supposed to be bankers brought home considerable luggage, and fitted up part of house as for a lady. This was closed soon afterwards. Left for America two months since. Has been, I understand, travelling in the South. Has telegraphed twice to Portland Place. His friends hear from him but rarely. Letters received recently posted in New York. One by last steamer posted in F.K.Y. Business here conducted by Blank. In the country, Blank of Blank has charge of the property. Brown. The document fell from my hands. F. New York was a small town near R. "'Your friend is a trump,' I declared. "'He tells me just what I most wanted to know.' And taking out my book, I made memoranda of the facts which had most forcibly struck me during my perusal of the communication before me. With the aid of what he tells me, I shall ferret out the mystery of Henry Clavering in a week. See if I do not.' "'And how soon,' inquired Mr. Grice, "'may I expect to be allowed to take a hand in the game?' "'As soon as I am reasonably assured, I am upon the right tack.' "'And what will it take to assure you of that?' "'Not much. A certain point's settled, and—' "'Hold on. Who knows but what I can do that for you?' 
and looking toward the desk which stood in the corner, Mr. Grice asked if I would be kind enough to open the top drawer and bring him the bits of partly burned paper I would find there. Hastily complying, I brought three or four strips of ragged paper and laid them on the table at his side. Another result of Fobbs's researches under the coal on the first day of the inquest, Mr. Grice abruptly explained. You thought the key was all he found. Well, it wasn't. A second turning over of the coal brought these to light, and very interesting they are, too. I immediately bent over the torn and discoloured scraps with great anxiety. There were four in number, and appeared at first glance to be the mere remnants of a sheet of common writing-paper, torn lengthwise into strips, and twisted up into lighters. But upon closer inspection they showed traces of writing upon one side, and what was more important still, the presence of one or more drops of spattered blood. This latter discovery was horrible to me and so overcame me for the moment that I put the scraps down, and turning toward Mr. Grice inquired, "'What do you make of them?' "'That is just the question I was going to put to you.' Swallowing my disgust, I took them up again. "'They look like the remnants of some old letter,' I said. "'They have that appearance,' Mr. Grice grimly assented. "'A letter which, from the drop of blood observable on the written side, must have been lying face up on Mr. Leavenworth's table at the time of the murder.' just so. And from the uniformity and width of each of these pieces, as well as their tendency to curl up when left alone, must first have been torn into even strips, and then severally rolled up, before being tossed into the grate where they were afterwards found. That is all good, said Mr. Grice. Go on. The writing, so far as discernible, is that of a cultivated gentleman. It is not that of Mr. Leavenworth, for I have studied his chirography too much lately not to know it at a glance. But it may be— "'Hold!' I suddenly exclaimed. "'Have you any mucilage handy? "'I think if I could paste these strips down upon a piece of paper "'so that they would remain flat, "'I should be able to tell you what I think of them much more easily.' "'There is 